How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my good friend, Dr. Molly Malouf. She's on a mission to radically extend health span and maximize human potential using scientific wellness, health technology, educational media, and health optimization medicine. Her fascination with innovation permeates her concierge medical practice that is focused on providing personalized medicine to entrepreneurs, technology executives, and investors. People pay her upwards of 40 grand a year so that they can be in constant feedback with her brain getting personalized health advice and nutrition advice um, to optimize their health and well-being. So I'm excited for Molly to uh, give you guys a download of some of her knowledge on this episode of the show where we're going to cover everything from intermittent fasting to how to become fat adapted to boosting your mitochondria. Mitochondria are the power plants of cells and they're critically important to feeling good and staying healthy over the long haul. Mitochondrial dysfunction is commonly associated with aging. And so if living a long and healthy life is of import to you, then you're definitely going to want to pay close attention to what Dr. Malouf has to say. But before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic has stuck with the genius life since the beginning, and I am super psyched about it. They make an entire line of products infused with medicinal mushrooms, ranging from chaga to cordyceps to reishi. And these mushrooms have what are called adaptogenic properties. Now, The research still needs to catch up on the wisdom of the ages, but people have been using um, adaptogenic herbs, uh, including mushrooms, for eons for their ability to help the body better cope with stress. If you'd like to check out anything that Four Sigmatic produces, you can head over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max, and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of everything in their online store. My personal favorites, if you're just dipping your toe into the medicinal mushroom pool, are their coffees that are infused with um, lion's mane or cordyceps, But of course, you're probably going to feel the coffee um, when you try those for the first time. So actually, if you're a noob to medicinal mushrooms, I would suggest some of their elixirs, uh, like their lion's mane elixir or even their reishi elixir, so that you could feel how these um, medicinal mushrooms, you know, affect you. Again, foursigmatic.com slash max or promo code max, and uh, you'll get to say 15% off. Now, we're just seconds away from diving into this chat with Molly. I'm pumped for you guys to listen to it. She is brilliant. Before we get to that, guys, please take a moment to support The Genius Life by leaving a rating and review for the show on iTunes. That really helps draw new listeners to it. Or go to my website at maxlugavere.com and join my newsletter. Either or both of those methods of supporting the Genius Life, I would uh, greatly appreciate. And in terms of my newsletter, you guys can opt out at any time. But I promise you, you won't because um, every week or so, I handwrite uh, an email with potentially life-changing information ranging from a product that I think you ought to know about along with an exclusive discount or... Um, one of my latest projects or a scientific breakdown that I think you need to um, be cognizant of. I'm always trying to provide uh, value with my emails. And by signing up, you'll get to see firsthand what thousands of people around the world are benefiting from. So again, that's maxlugavere.com to sign up for my newsletter, enter your first and last name and your email address, and we'll be in touch. All right, guys, I don't want to dilly-dally any further. I'm excited for this chat with Dr. Malouf. Um, talking all things health span and mitochondrial uh, optimization and lots of other stuff. So strap on your seatbelt. Let's go. Molly Malouf, thank you so much for being here with me. <laughs> Hi. Hey. Man, I'm so excited to have this chat with you because we met, where were we? We were at Esalen and I attended a few of your lectures. Yeah. And I thought you were absolutely brilliant. Oh my gosh, and thank you. Yeah. So... um I know you do a lot of work on uh, health span and you just finished teaching a course at Stanford. Yeah, I did. On the topic. Yeah. What was that about? Well, um, when I met you, I actually gave that talk on health span and I was sort of just starting to um, kind of put out this message to the world that I think our collective obsession with longevity is slightly short-sighted in that um, we are so focused on the quantity of life and, and healthcare has been ultimately focused on keeping people alive, but not well. And so health span, the, the central concept is that we want to extend the number of healthy years for as long as possible and compress morbidity to the very end of life so that you have more healthy years and so that you ideally will live longer, but you'll also um, not be so sick as you age. And as someone who's had grandparents die of chronic preventable lifestyle related diseases, it's something that I want to avoid. And um, I spent a lot of time studying 
cultures with lots of centenarians and tried to figure out why were they living so long and what were some of the common factors. And one of the biggest factors is that they actually get the same diseases that we do. They just get them at the very end of their life, mm-hmm. like the last three years, people who live past 100. So to me, the real question is is, is not how do we invent more med- medical technology to replace joints and fix organs and replace organs, but like let's keep the ones we've got um, healthy and robust for as long as possible. Oh my God, that makes so much sense. Thanks. <laughs> are people are people living sicker for longer than well, than previously? Well, we're living a lot longer than we were even 100 years ago, right? Like, believe it or not, African Americans in America were only living to like 35, 100 years ago. So like, wow. we're living a lot longer as a culture in America, which is amazing. But I think to get there, we've had to do some things that... Um, in retrospect, got us incrementally um, longer lives, but also now there's some side effects, things like antibiotics, for example. Saved a lot of lives, disordered a lot of guts. Now we've got um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And so now we're dealing with tri- what's like sort of the next phase of medicine. And I think medicine, actually, I'm not against it. Like sanitation, vaccines, um, antibiotics, and um, and the drugs that we use to prop people's people's health up, which are like antihypertensives, anti-cholesterol medicines, anti-diabetic medicines. These medicines have helped people stay alive, but these people are sort of slowly decaying over time. And um, to me, what's problematic is that a lot of these drugs have side effects and they don't work that well, but they work well enough that people are still alive, but they're kind of like, no offense, but they're kind of like half alive. Hmm. Like they've lost the light they literally lost the ability to generate light, which is called skin autofluorescence. And it's produced, it's a thing actually, you can measure it. Wow. And people who are diabetic actually produce less light. And so um, all this comes down to mitochondrial health at the end of the day. And fundamentally, our lifestyles of inactivity, too much stress, and overeating damage mitochondria. And that's where I believe a lot of disease um, begins. And so. Um, I think everyone's been super excited about gut health for a while, but the next real health movement is about mitochondrial health. Oh my God. This is so exciting. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about how to, how to promote mitochondrial health. Sure. What are some of the basic tenets of your, of your prescription for better mitochondria? Well, so I'll tell you a little anecdotal story of my own life. When I was in my twenties, my sister was like, Molly, you think that you know so much about health and you don't even work out. And I was like, this is like when I was like just out of meds. I was I was in I think just out of med school in my residency, and in fact, like I was on my feet a lot, but I was not working out. And um, she made a really good point because fundamentally, movement is life. And as we move our bodies, we generate more mitochondria to provide more capacity for the work that we have to do. And as we move our bodies less, our body actually says, "Well, there's no demands being placed upon me, so I'm not going to make more mitochondria because I don't need them." But the problem with that is that we actually uh, produce less energy. And so um, one of the biggest complaints in medicine is fatigue. I don't have enough energy. Well, to make more energy, you actually have to move your body more because that literally sends a signal to your body to actually produce more capacity. Mm. Mitochondria are capacitors. They are also power plants. So they make and they store charge. So if you think about it in physics terms, it's literally like, you, you, do you want more batteries? Well, you have to actually do the behaviors that make more batteries. So the cool thing I've learned is that it's not just movement, but it's all, and I guess to, to end that point, um, two particularly good ways of making more mitochondria are weightlifting and uh, lifting heavy weights, as well as high intensity interval training. Um, but I could literally give an entire hour long talk about both of those things, which I have in my lecture series. So we can talk more about that, or we can talk about um, metabolism, which is also a way to make more mitochondria. So flipping the metabolic switch is going from carbohydrate metabolism to fat metabolism. Hmm. And so the shift from, um, from, from the, from those different states can occur through dietary means. If you were to go on a ketogenic diet temporarily, um, or fasting, right. Or exercising while fasting. So you do this thing called flipping the metabolic switch. Your body starts producing less, um, your body has less glucose in the blood, has more ketones in the blood. And, and the, in that shift of back and f- that sort of back and forth, um, your, your mitochondria, what happens when you fast is like they come together and they communicate and they start say, they say, okay, well, these mitochondria are bad and these ones are good. These ones basically are the bad batteries. They don't carry charge anymore. And these ones are the good ones. So we're going to keep the good ones. We're going to throw out the bad ones. And so they come together and they break apart. It's called fission and fusion. Fusion coming together, fission breaking apart. And this sort of cyclical cycle of coming together, breaking apart, um, throwing out the bad ones, taking out the garbage of your cells, it's called mitophagy. 
this is how we make more mitochondria. So it's not about, in my opinion, choosing one dietary lifestyle necessarily. It's about kind of like cross-training your metabolism. It's it's what we've learned um, through, it's kind of applying some of the same tenets of fitness is that your body will adapt to different demands. And so we want our body to be metabolically flexible. And if we do that and we do things that generate that, we get more energy. So interesting. For people who aren't scientifically trained, I feel like we've all seen those those illustrations of cells you know, in our high school biology class. Yeah. And there's always that picture of the one mitochondria. But I think it's important to realize that some cells can have thousands of mitochondria oh, yeah. in them. So yeah. this is something that's a totally uh, plastic mm-hmm. quality of cells. And, yeah. and mitochondria, as you mentioned, are they're the power plants of cells. Totally. But, but they're not just that. They do more than that. And that's this, this is what's blown my, my brain apart. They're also like signaling transducers. So they are actually responsible for taking signals from the world and transducing them into directions for your nucleus, actually. So they literally have this constant crosstalk with your nucleus telling it what to do. And we think that everything is like in our conscious control, but arguably mitochondria are really trying to get you to do two things. They're trying to get you to survive and reproduce. And so like that's the biological imperative in a nutshell. And um, the reason why they want you to do that is because they were initially bacteria a long, long time ago. The endosymbiotic hypothesis is that we incorporated them into our bodies because we would benefit from producing more energy, would enable us to survive more effectively, and it also enabled them to survive more effectively. So um, we've developed this beautiful relationship, and, and they're kind of like, you know, th- th- there's this new idea of the holobiont, which is that there's the microbiome, uh, and the microbiome's d- DNA and then there's the genome from ours, a nuclear genome in our DNA. And then there's mitochondrial d- genome and the mitochondrial DNA. So we have all this information in our bodies um, sort of directing us and, and telling us what to do. But the mitochondria um, in our adrenals in particular are responsible for synthesizing cor- cortisol and norepinephrine and epinephrine. So they're actually really important to the stress response. Wow. Yeah. Super interesting. Mm-hmm. You were talking about fasting as being one of the primary means right. of stimulating mm-hmm. mitochondrial biogenesis, right? The creation right. of new mitochondria. Do you know if the, if the, if that um, ability of fasting to do that is independent of being calorie restricted? Like, do you need to... So I've been, I've been doing a, a good amount of research trying to figure out the difference between calorie restriction and fasting and the benefits to the body. Hmm. And I, I say the jury is still out, but it does seem like fasting will induce ketosis more effectively than calorie restriction. Because when you're eating food, but you're just restricting it, let's say you're eating all day long, but you're eating a little bit all day long, you're still stimulating insulin, right? And you still have got food in your body. So you're less likely to produce um, higher levels of ketones if you're just calorie restricting. Um, that seems to be what the evidence suggests, although I still think that this is very early science. But um, but when you're fasting, you're um, more likely to, to, to be in fat metabolism. Hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. And the metabolic switch that you were talking about, that mm-hmm. are we... Is it is it as binary as the switch metaphor kind of implies? Well, what you or? do is you measure your glucose and you measure your ketones in your blood as you fast or as you do these experiments. And what I do is I use an Abbott Freestyle. Um, sorry, I use an Abbott Precision Extra for my ketones hmm. and glucose measurements that are from my finger stick. Then I use an Abbott um, Freestyle Libre for my continuous glucose monitoring. Wow. And so I can see. Literally, when my, my ketones are rising, I can, I can see when my blood sugar is dropping. And I know that I have fuel around if I have enough ketones. Hmm. Um, if I don't, then this is like the whole stereotypical um, sort of story about a person who does like a marathon, they bonk. When you run out of fuel, it's literally your body is not able to tap into its own fat supplies. So wow. like a lot of endurance athletes are, are just completely carb adapted. That's all they live on. They sometimes bonk during races um, because they're not able to actually tap into their own fat metabolism. Wow. So the way to do that is you train your metabolism to flip the switch. And so you can do that through exercising while fasting. You can do that through just fasting. And you can do that through different types of fasts. And then you can also do it through different types of dietary nutrition changes. It's fascinating. Yeah. So what are some of the... So protecting our mitochondrial health, stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis... Really good actionable tips. Thank mm-hmm. you for that. What are some of the biggest uh, detractors to mitochondrial sure. health today? Well, one of the biggest ones is actually just overeating. So just eating too much food in one sitting, mm. specifically high-fat, high-sugar, packaged processed foods, mm. fast foods, right? These really poor quality fats and refined carbohydrates eaten together 
cause metabolic gridlock. So that it's like literally you're taking, imagine like, um, it's like LA, we're in LA right now and there's a big traffic jam and it's like, literally you can't, you can't like get the stuff you're trying to transport to where it's going because everything is just waiting in line. So what's happening is that um, typically what happens is the carbohydrates burn really fast and hot Hmm. and then they raise your blood sugar. And then the fats can actually cause some insulin resistance as well. And so you end up with like really high blood sugar spikes when people eat these foods, which stimulates lots of insulin, Hmm. which stresses your pancreas, Hmm. right? But it also stresses your mitochondria because they literally have to digest all this Hmm. and they have to process all this. And so it's, and then if you're constantly in a growth state, you never get that um, fission infusion, you just, you're constantly, um, in fission, you're constantly just like poor and poor quality batteries that carry like worse and worse charge. Wow. So that's really problematic. And, and the thing is, is like, um, like the way I get around this, cause like sometimes you are going to want to binge and, and eat a lot of food at once. I just eat tons of vegetables when I'm stressed out. Like I eat like piles of vegetables because it's like sends the safe safety signals to my body, but it keeps me from overeating food that's bad for me because we actually have a natural evolutionary design to eat lots of food when we're stressed Hmm. because our bodies are saying, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I feel stressed. Stress is a signal that I'm not safe. I need to survive. And so the first thing I can do to survive is find food because that's energy. And that means I have resources so that if something goes wrong and I don't have resources, maybe I'm not going to have a meal tomorrow or for a week. I've got fat enabled um, to be stored on my body. Hmm. And, um, and so overeating is, is sort of a design, but underneath it all is the stress component, right? And chronic stress itself is damaging to the mitochondria. Um, so our bodies are really designed to have intermittent stress, but now we have this um, generalized uh, unsafety of mm. modern life. There's a new theory called the generalized safety theory of stress called wow. guts. And it's literally been written in like the last two or three years. So it's very new. And um, the old theories are like theories around um, like the stressors themselves are damaging, right? Like getting a divorce is unquestionably going to be a da- like going to be a stressful experience, right? That's obvious. But what's not obvious is why are people feeling just a general sense of anxiety without having major life stressors, right? I can't tell you the number of women that I know who literally cannot name the reasons why they're anxious. They're just like, I just always feel this way, hmm. and um, and sometimes they have reasons, but sometimes they don't, and. One of the big the big things that people don't um, recognize is super stressful, but it's just now starting to come into the mainstream is just social isolation and loneliness. Mm. So we're not designed to be alone. We're not even designed to live alone. We're supposed to be pack animals. And being alone and, and our weird modern coping mechanisms of isolating ourselves when we're unhappy because we don't want people to know, that's just so unnatural to our design. And so um, I think that that's, I think disconnection from our families and our communities is a huge source of uncertainty and unsafety because a community would have provided you with safetyness, oh, sorry, with safety. And now without it, um, people develop loneliness. And the thing is loneliness theoretically has been considered to be this sort of primitive drive to connect you back to the, to the, to the clan. But we have stopped doing the behaviors that bring us back into the group. Mm. Um, if you are on the outskirts of a, of like a primitive tribe and you were, um, and that would have been like, that would have been a signal that you need to be, uh, you need to have heightened alertness so that if there were, if there was something unsafe, you would be able to run away from it and get, bring and come closer. Um, so I think what I've really learned is that, um, to understand what damages mitochondria, you have to think about how we were originally designed and then how does modern life not match that design? So, um, lack of movement, too much food, too much stress. And then on top of that, there's all these like, you know, um, mitochondrial toxins like glyphosate, for example, mm. and a- even antibiotics can damage mitochondria. Um, What's your stance on glyphosate? Because it's sort of a controversial topic. I, I honestly don't think I don't understand why it's controversial. Because there are like super brilliant leading scientists at MIT who have like done loads of papers on this topic, and it just seems so unequivocally bad. So I just I don't know why it's a, I, I just find it confusing. I'm just mm. curious to know why it's a controversy at all because it just seems so straightforward to me um my stance on it is that we need to eliminate it from the food supply period and move and move forward um and yet it's just there's so much money in the agricultural industry that and so much lobbying that it's going to be a while but um so certain antibiotics can damage mitochondria um i have um clients that have certain infections um, specific viral, viral infections. Like I've been really digging into chronic fatigue and trying to figure out what's the chronic fatigue 
piece of, of mitochondrial health. And I think actually, um, I had, I have a, a client who, um, has, uh, had a history of syphilis and syphilis produces anti-mitochondrial antibodies, hmm. right? And there's actually anti-mitochondrial antibodies produced in certain autoimmune diseases. So, um, I've been really trying to dig into the connection between mitochondria and immunity and figure that out more. I'm still in the beginning of really p- like putting together all these pieces, but I think that there's a, there's a lot more viruses and viral infections that have damaged people's health and that have led to like, um, led to like chronic fatigue than we realize. And if you really peel back the questions behind these people's health, it's like major life stress compounded upon major life stress compounded upon immune system breaks down and then another major stress and then they get these infections and then they have like massive chronic fatigue. Yeah. There's, I mean, an interesting connection now between Alzheimer's disease and various viral mm-hmm. uh, infections, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's early days for that. But, yeah. Um, and Alzheimer's disease and blood sugar as well. Yeah. You know, a large, I'm sure a large, I think it's what a third, a third of Alzheimer's is type three diabetes. Something like that. Maybe yeah, I mean, it, d- it depends where you look. You know, a third may be attributable to, attributable to modifiable risk factors. Forty mm-hmm. percent um, might be owed to chronically elevated insulin. Um, the type three diabetes hypothesis. I don't know exactly how many uh, cases would be attributed mm-hmm. to that, but obviously, eighty percent of people with Alzheimer's disease have insulin resistance, and so it's just an wow. interesting, yeah, wow, yeah, interesting connection. Yeah, totally. Um, going back to fasting. So how long do you fast for? I mean, what's your, what's, what's your fasting protocol? I have done all the experimentation the last year on fasting. And so I designed an entire lecture on this topic because I was trying to explain like, well, how do you prepare for fasting and how do you find the right schedule for yourself? And really, I think, um, fasting is a tool in a toolbox, right? And so you can do different fasts for different outcomes. And so extended fasts, like past like two to three days, are really effective for autophagy, um, really effective for taking out the garbage of your cells. Mm. Um, but the problem with that for women in particular is that our bodies will always prioritize survival over reproduction. Mm. And so to me, I found that if I do too many three-day fasts, my periods are thrown off for a week. Wow. And that sucks. So I've stopped doing extended fasts more than like once every few months, um, beyond like three days. So how can women reap the benefits of autophagy so, you well, know, mitochondrial health. I think a good, I think like I, so I like, I like to, tra- I like to balance fasting with other stress in my life. Right. So the way that you, you have to think about stress and fasting is like, imagine you have a cup that you can fill with, um, what they call your allostatic load, which is your amount of stress that you can handle in a day before you run out of juice. Um, and so there's things that you can fill it with like work stress, relationship stress, ideally not those two things. Ideally you you don't have too much of those, but everyone's got a little bit of work stress. Um, exercise is stress, right? High intensity interval training is a stress. Um, and, and like, and then fasting is a stress, right? So like if, but if you like load a bunch of other stressors on, like for example, I took on a new job, which was teaching on top of already being a doctor and an entrepreneur. That's, that was like, oh crap, I, I can't. I can't possibly fast the way I was fasting before. So I did an experiment where I fasted for two months and I did three 36 hour fasts a week for two months. Jeez. It was crazy, but it was, it taught me a ton about myself and it was really, um, a really amazing experience. However, um, it actually raised my metabolic rate, which was interesting. You would, you would imagine that it would have lowered it, but I was modeling myself after an animal study that were like mice were doing these alternate day fasts. Um, so I did that for two months and then, and then I started this new job and I was just like, yeah, I can't do this right now. Like my body was just sending me signals like, don't do this. Mm. So I was really listening to my body and that, so I s- sort of peel back those fasts and started just doing 16, eight, a few days a week. Mm. Um, that's about all I could handle when I was under the most stress. So that's why I tell people like if you're under a lot of stress, even 14 hour fasts is better than nothing. Um, don't over, don't get overly ambitious with these things. I have already learned the lessons. You yeah. don't have to do that. Um, but every change of seasons, it's not a bad idea to give yourself sort of a clean out period. So like a good three day fast is like really effective for just like resetting your body. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I would recommend that around every quarter. And then if you want to go, like if you're, if you're obese or if you're diabetic, then reading Jason Fung's book, the old, the, um, Obesity the, code. Not that's a great book, but um, the complete guide to fasting. Huh. It's a great book he wrote. He wrote, and um, 
I think it's really important to, um, if you are a diabetic or you are obese, to definitely talk to your doctor before you implement these things because you might have to change your medication. You might have to lower the amount of medication you're taking. Um, but it's really effective for um, lowering fasting glucose. Mm-hmm. So like when you when you fast regularly and you um, start flipping the metabolic switch, your body starts burning fat and it burns the fat closest to where the fat burns, which is in your liver. And so your liver fat starts burning up really fast and then your visceral fat starts burning up. And so like, to me, this is um, how we reduce liver insulin resistance is fasting. So I recommend fasting um, depending, it really depends on, your metabolism and your body fat level. So if you have a really low body fat level, you really got to be careful because you don't want to drop it too low. It it can actually really hurt you. Um, People who are bodybuilders need to be exceptionally careful with their body fat, especially with fasting, because you can really turn on the massive survival mode mechanism of your body. Just like, I'm going to take any calories. I'm going to store them because you have literally told me that I am not safe. Hmm. So it's always about balancing stress and safety signaling and body fat, body fat is literally your body's barometer of like, do I have resources to survive? Wow. So you got to think about it from that perspective. And so I look at fasting as a tool to help with reducing aging, improving skin, um, improving gut health. Oh my gosh, it's really helped my gut health. Hmm. <laughs> and um, my, my, my cat's running around. This <laughs> your is cat like just n- fell off the table. Fell off the t- <laughs> She's definitely a house cat. She can be clumsy. <laughs> She would not survive in the wild. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny, actually. Um, yeah. So with fasting, it's about where are you, where do you begin as well? Where where did you start? Like, wh- what's your what's your fat metabolism like? Like, are you fat adapted or not? So I always tell someone like, if you're not at all fat adapted, let's focus on whole foods. Let's let's get rid of the refined carbs and sugar. Let's focus on eating more vegetables and getting fiber in your body. Um, start with the basics. Now, some people have told me, well, I don't want to do the basics because I don't even like to eat that way. I'm like, okay, fine. Go off and fast. It's going to be real hard. So it's like kind of what your pain tolerance is as well. Mm-hmm. And then what what are your what your health status is. So like um, some people who, um, you know, maybe be suffering from cancer have to be careful with how much they fast because they may, um, you know, have low body fat as it is because their metabolism is really high. So it's, there's a lot of things to consider, but those are general guidelines. Yeah. What are the benefits of, you mentioned 16-8, which for mm-hmm. people listening that don't know what that is, you know, it's a 16-hour yeah. fasting window, mm-hmm. eight hours of feeding. Yeah. What are the hours that you would pick for that, for mm-hmm. your feeding window? And what are the, I mean, what are the benefits? Like, is eight hours enough in your view to... Yeah. I mean, the benefits are, you, you definitely do... Um, well, it all, I mean, it's, it's particularly good if you mix that with exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefits are if you are weightlifting, you're going to be less likely to have muscle atrophy. Mm. So you can maintain um, – because with weightlifting, and, and I, I, I am aware that a lot of people who listen to health podcasts are often bodybuilders, right? Yeah. And so they want to eat like their six meals a day. And so to get those six meals in, it's not that easy if you have a four-hour window, right? So, um, you know, not that I recommend everyone eat that often, but – it definitely um, basically gives you more time in low insulin mode than high insulin mode. Yeah. And that's good for your body, right? That's just actually help, helpful because it gives your body, it gives your gut a rest. It gives your, um, and, and frankly, it improves focus and attention in mm-hmm. general. Like if, if you're fasting, you're focused because your body's like, well, I need to go find food. Yeah. You know, anyone who's ever done any fasting knows that like you start feeling um, like when you, the cool thing is, is that when you, when you extend it even beyond that, a lot of people take Adderall for energy, but your body starts producing its own catecholamines when you fast. And so when I was doing the three 36 hour fasts a week, um, which by the way, I, I, there's a bunch of caveats we should talk about for extended fasting. But when I was doing that, I was noticing on fasting days, I was even more focused and that was because I was fat adapted and I was tapping into ketosis and I was checking my ketones and they were rising. Hmm. Um, when people say I can't focus when I'm fasting, it tells me that they're not fat adapted and that their blood sugar is dropping and that they're literally are running out of fuel. Hmm. And so it's all about kind of like, I mean, the best, the best world would be where we have glucose and ketone sensors that are continuous. Hmm. So we knew what our current fuel supply was yeah. and that will come eventually, but it's going to be a little while. You're wearing a, a continuous glucose monitor. Yeah. What's the purpose of that for you? Um. Oh my gosh, I have so many reasons why <laughs> I wear this thing. I've been wearing- Does it hurt when they put them in? Like it doesn't. What? Honestly, I just put one on a, a client a few days ago. How does it stay in there? It's a st- it stick. It sticks. It sticks. It's wow. got these like adhesive. Oh, it's an adhesive. But um, when when they apply it, they've designed it really beautifully where it, um, it makes the sound of its insertion 
um, like before it actually inserts. And so you think it's already in when it's, it's, it's weird the timing. I can't explain it, but basically like when it, when they, when you apply it, it makes a sound and then you don't even realize it, but it's already in. And so it's, it's, there is a needle to apply it, but the needle comes out and it hmm. just leaves a filament. So it's just this tiny little wire. Wow. Yeah. It's great. It's amazing. Yeah. And so, um, I've been using this for years now, like on myself, I've been wearing it pretty consistently for about three years, but then I've been like playing with it for five years and I use it for, well, when I first started using it, I actually just discovered, holy crap, I'm not as healthy as I thought. Um, my fasting blood sugar was below a hundred, but it wasn't good. Like, I don't believe below a hundred is good. I think if you're in your upper nineties, you're actually really close to prediabetes. Mm. My postprandial blood sugar was right below 140, sometimes hitting above 140. So I was like borderline, like on the road to pre-diabetic even three years ago when I thought I knew everything. So I had to make some pretty big changes in my life. And in the process of my own biohacking, I've learned a ton. And in the process of doing a lot of research uh, professionally around this topic, like I worked for a, a continuous glucose monitoring company. I was like the main person making meaning of the signal. Um, and then I'm also building a, a software company myself right now. Um, through that, I've discovered that, um, so we've got 90 million people in America who are pre-diabetic and only 10% of them know it. Oh my God. Why do you think that is? Well, do you, I mean, like most people are not getting the, the labs, right? So most people are not getting um, even a fasting glucose or a hemoglobin A1C. But it turns out even if they are, the hemoglobin A1C is only 60% sensitive for prediabetes. So it's like a crappy test. Mm. And we've been using this clinically. And I'm just like, how is it that like the healthcare system that is supposed to have these high standards for like efficacy and evidence is letting this absolutely garbage test pass as something that's useful when it's not. And so, um, and I mean like, when when I discovered this, I was just like, it just hit me. I was like, this is why 90 million people don't like, like only, you know, only 10% of 90 million people know that they actually have prediabetes. The other reason is because not everybody has high fasting glucose. So there's two ways of having prediabetes. There's high fasting glucose and high post-meal glucose. Two hours after a meal or two hours after a glucose tolerance test, which is a 75-gram um, cup of sugar syrup, <laughs> um, 75 grams of sugar, like doesn't seem like a healthy test to take in general. Nobody wants to take that test, right? right? Nobody wants to go to the doctor and sit for three hours and drink a thing and then wait for two hours and, and then take all these labs. Nobody's going to do that. Right. So that's why a lot of people don't know is they just haven't been checked. And even if they have been checked, they've been using the wrong tests. So for me, the first question is, is like, am I healthy? Right. That's why I put these on people is because I want to see, are you healthy or not? The second thing is if you're not healthy, if your blood sugar isn't normal, then what can you do to get healthier? And it turns out that the cause of diabetes is not just nutrition. The cause of diabetes and the cause of high blood sugar is literally all the reasons why an organism doesn't adapt to the modern life that we're in, which it comes down to the same things I was telling you about mitochondria, which is inactivity, too much stress, not enough exercise, um, and pollution, lack of vitamin D, lack of minerals. Um, There's a bunch of different reasons why you can be insulin resistant. But but everyone looks to to food first because it makes a lot of sense. It's a huge cause. But in fact, there's a lot of reasons why people are, are um, have have issues. Yeah, and even within within nutrition, there mm-hmm. are numerous factors that might be contributing to insulin resistance aside from carbs. Mm-hmm. Even though carbs really get kind of the mm-hmm. brunt of yes. you know, the demonization today. Yes. But they're not really. I mean, they're involved certainly, mm-hmm. but they're not. I mean, there's like a, a you know a handful of other things that are involved. Yeah. In terms of diet as well. Yeah. Um, a, a big thing going back to the the high fat discussion, like high saturated fat alone in the context of a higher fat diet doesn't seem to be as problematic as it is in the context of a high carb diet. Hmm. So like, and by that, by high carb, high fat, I mean like eating foods that have those two things yeah. together. Now the baked potato with butter on it. Yeah. It's like, I'm always, for every meal. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, that's, that's a problem. And then it's also just the, like, just like the packaged foods and like the pies and pastries that people eat. Like a lot of the stuff, stuff, literally the top five sources of calories in the American diet are things like chicken dishes, pizza, pizza's high fat, high carb. Um, you know, uh, pies and pastries, high fat, high carb. Yeah. And chicken dishes. You're talking about like chicken fingers and like fried fried chicken chicken. sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. 
exactly high fat high carb Gnarly. so it's like those 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 hit you pretty hard and they damage your mitochondria and then like the sugar fructose right like fructose super super good for causing your liver to get fatty hmm. um and alcohol great great way to get a fatty liver great way to get insulin resistance great way to get um you know high fasting glucose yeah um other things like just snacking constantly on like chips you know on like the refined carbs like it seems like snack foods that tend to be um you know the the poor quality uh refined carbohydrates from the monoculture grains yeah those are pretty bad hmm. um so those are problematic and then and then lack of fiber like we need fiber in our diet to feed our microbiome to give our microbiome the ability to produce um small chain fatty acids which really do nourish our mucosa and then also help manage our metabolism and our liver health so Fiber is important. Um, a lot of people have issues with fiber because they have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Maybe they have autoimmunity. Maybe they have leaky gut. Um, and so you see these people turning to like the carnivore diet and they're like, this is going to fix all my problems. And then um, you're like, well, okay, maybe temporarily, but maybe not long term. It's going to mm. be good for you to have that much heme in your body. So... Um, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not really in the carn carnivore bad wagon, aside from like a short term nutritional therapy for like people who really suffer, who can't find other solutions. Yeah. But the real question is, is like, how do you, um, how do you like, like, like other things that are problematic? Um, I guess that, yeah, the heme, we should talk about the heme a little bit. So it seems like, it seems like the, um, the fact that most people who, who do eat red meat and, and do eat a lot of it are also eating it with, um, potatoes <laughs> they're also eating it with like typical american diet fries right um that seems to be pretty bad in the context of those of those diets i'm not anti-red meat at all i think it's about um i think we're gonna actually find that like some people really do um do better with it and some people do worse with it like mm. i have a family history of colon cancer it seems like reasonable for me to limit my red meat and processed meat intake hmm. just because that is my predisposition. Does that mean everyone has to? Um, well, I think everybody should probably limit processed meat, but I think not everyone necessarily needs to be as careful as I am around red meat. Um, is the I, data convincing enough for you to, to minimize it in your diet? I mean, or, I mean, know. I know you just came back from Belcampo and so you're like all about the red meat right <laughs> now. Pro. No, I mean, but, I'm, not, I'm um, definitely open to have my assumptions challenged, but I mean, I was just actually today. It's funny that, that we're talking about this now. Yeah. I was looking up the relationship between heme and, uh, nitrates and nitrites mm -hmm. and nitrosamines mm -hmm. as a result. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, f I feel like it's always a context specific issue. My, my issue is always going to be quantity and quality, right? Like I don't think that humans ever had the level of abundance of meat that we have today. Mm. It just, I mean, yeah, maybe we kill woolly mammoths occasionally, but like, I just, I, I have a hard time imagining that like we had really fatty cuts of meat available to us in primitive times. It seems like we probably had leaner animals, right? So to me, um, super fatty, rich marbled meat is like not optimal in large quantities in, in the human body. I just, I, I'm not convinced that it is. Agree. Um, I do think small amounts of it, um, in the highest possible quality are really, really healthy. Mm -hmm. And that's I, cause that's what we would have encountered. So it's like, let's try to model ourselves after, um, you know, like, let's look at some of the indigenous cultures that are alive today and that are, that are alive and well and see how much they're eating and, they're, it's not like meat is like this huge central part of their diet every day all the time. It's like they get it when they get it and they don't, but they don't eat that much. And they're also um, like, it really comes back to also the fasting discussion. Like, should we even be eating every day? Right. Like, did we, did we eat every day, you know, thousands of years ago? Yeah. Um, probably not. And, you know, um, but, you know, we were getting minerals from water. We were getting minerals from plants. We were getting sustenance in other ways, right? We were outside a lot more. So we were getting energy from the sun. We were getting, um, I, I just think we had a healthier relationship with nature a long time ago and we've lost that. And so, um, red meat to me, like just the abundance of it and the quantity that we're consuming just doesn't seem necessary. Yeah. Fair. And yeah. the iron thing is real, especially for men. Well, the iron thing is real, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I need more iron because I'm a woman and I get deficient easily, but yeah, a lot of men do end up with um, higher iron levels and then they need to either go get phlebotomy or just reduce their iron intake. Yeah. Donating blood. It is, you know, 
good for society. Bloodletting. It's, yeah. it's actually good for you yeah. <laughs> for some people. Super interesting. Um, let's talk about, you must get asked about uh, various things that end up, because you're, you're pretty active on social media. Sure. There's a lot of misinformation that circles mm-hmm. around the, you know, um, especially in the, in the health and wellness world on Instagram. What are some of the top like misconceptions you would say that you find yourself battling constantly? misconceptions in health and wellness yeah i mean um, for example i get a lot from the i see a lot in the fitness community you know fitness people in fitness tend to be very calorie obsessed oh yeah you know that everything really can be boiled down to like calories in calories yeah. out. yeah you know oh i hate that i'm sorry i hate that so much <laughs> that's annoying um yeah because like they're they're also the people that are just eating the junk food the, the, the health junk foods you know the crap that they buy that like uh, uh, the endurance athletes are are just as bad with the goos and gels. Mm-hmm. Like, I, um, I, yeah, I can't stand the, like, I have a hard time with the, um, I have a really hard time with, like, the people masquerading as, like, health product sellers that really the products are just more packaged processed foods. Mm-hmm. And I was actually talking to my friend Justin recently who, like, had this major Twitter storm around fake meat on Twitter. Mark my words. I told him this this statement. I said, <laughs> I said that fake meat was um, was uh, the trans fat of our generation. I feel like you ta- you you tagged me in that or something. Yeah, because I've heard that. Yeah, I've said this before. But I he he and I have had this conversation. But I also like no offense to these keto companies, but these keto food products, like how are these not just refined fats? How are these not just refined fats for? for human consumption. Like how is it that refined coconut and refined, I mean, I'm, I'm just, this is what I'm trying to figure out, by the way, this is actually a controversy that I'm trying to figure out is like, are these refined fat flours doing us any favors or are they replacing the refined flours that we've been consuming? And like, at what point do we need to ask ourselves, like, like what's the right amount of erythritol to consume and stevia to consume? And like, I love this Crosby guy that you keep on posting. (laughs) His stuff is great. I mean, I really want to make all the food he's making, but then I'm also kind of like, "Mm." at what point do we need to ask ourselves, are we just replacing the junk foods with like healthy junk foods and still activating the same nucleus accumbens, dopaminergic pathways that have been activated when we eat, you know, the carb laden ones. Like, there, there's, there's this woman on the internet who's got this, um, you know, she's got this uh, bright line eating program, right? Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. And it's all about how like people who really suffer from overeating and, and over obesity, like part of their problem is literally that like they're eating hyper palatable foods that like make their brains like hyper addicted to foods and they're super sensitive and predisposed to that addiction. Yeah. And so for them, they actually need to eliminate the flour and the sugar and the dairy in order to turn down that pathway and reprogram their brain. And what I've, I've also personally noticed myself is that like when I eat a lot of these like, these like replacement junk foods, it actually still gives me the same experience Hundred percent. of like, Oh my God, I need more. Right. And so it's okay to have treats, right? Totally. Okay. But we really got to ask ourselves like, and maybe I'm, and maybe I'm just being like the health crusader and like, maybe I'm wrong and we actually need to find some compromises in the world and people do need tools for weight loss. But what I'm saying to people is like, if you really want to lose weight, like the simplest diet in the whole world is whole foods and fasting Yeah. and exercise. It's actually the basics. No, I think this is really important information because most people, you know, these, these replacement junk foods make health claims that they're going to be better for you than other right. junk foods. And they may in some way, you know, they're going to have less PUFAs. They're mm-hmm. going to have less, you know, the grain and seed oils mm-hmm. and the processed refined flours. But I'll be the first to admit that when Crosby puts a plate of six of his freaking donut holes in front of me, I'm eating all, all six. of them. You know? Yeah. <laughs> all of them. They are gone in a minute, you <laughs> yeah. know? And like, I actually have that, that response pathway of like, I, I feel food like intensely when I eat stuff like that and I get high. And sometimes I go to like parties to my friends and like, no joking, like people are do people are like, people are um, doing things that they shouldn't be doing party favors. <laughs> and, but like the thing that gets me when I'm at these parties is the junk food. Like one of, one of my friends who I am, ups- who I just love to death, but he makes these like gluten-free cookies and ice cream sundaes whenever we're partying and I eat them and I'm literally like, guys, I am higher than I've been at at Burning Man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the, ju- the sugar high is like to me, far more intense than almost any drug I've tried. And like, I, I kind of feel like people don't understand that like this is legally sanctioned. Yeah. Like you're not a hummingbird. You don't have access to flowers like that. Right. Yeah, like yeah. you in the, in nature, humans would never have had, unless we hit like a honey, um, like a honey jackpot. Right. right. Like 
that and then we probably would have binged on honey i mean let's get real like we probably would have occasionally done that because that would have been like phenomenal like immediate energy but that would not happen very often right you need that energy to run from the bees exactly right like this makes sense so um um yeah what else i mean (sighs) butter coffee (laughs) <laughs> I've been talking shit about butter coffee for years. <laughs> so like, I feel like that's like old, but, um, the key, the key thing with butter coffee is that everyone just needs to get their laps done. Like some people totally fine. Like my friends who, um, are like in peak physical shape. You look at them, they're like Greek gods. They're like, yeah, I've been doing butter coffee. I do that. They do everything right. Mm-hmm. Like their labs look phenomenal. I, on the other hand, if I do butter coffee, I just have LDL particles that are like crazy. So I'm just like, look, not everybody gets to have the genetics that enables them to have butter coffee. Yeah. So if you don't got those genetics, then you might as well skip it. So you're saying some people will over-respond on, on a lipid profile. Yes. You'll see like an yes. uh, you know, LDLC. Mm-hmm. What do you... LDLP. What, yeah. That'll get real high. Um, so I just like, you know, like if that's your response, then maybe you shouldn't do that. Hmm. Um, I think the, uh, the one size fits all like, recomm- like taking the, honestly, the big one is, is like listening, no offense. Cause we're on a, I mean, we're actually on a podcast, but reading blog posts and podcasts and immediately believing everything you read without actually doing your own research. Like the sad thing is, is that most people just don't have the training to go to PubMed and to find the papers that they need. Mm -hmm. And like, I I could like give an entire lecture on this because this is like one of the core skills you need to to learn as like a modern thinker is like, how do you learn to question everything you read online? And actually, how do you learn to sort through evidence? Like some of these really famous bloggers and famous um, people on the internet you go to their articles and then you actually start looking at the links Mm. and then you start reading the papers and you're like, this is garbage. Mm. Like this is bad science. And so unless you're able to actually sift through it all, um, just blindly trusting like health gurus is just a huge problem. Um, And then also realizing that like not everything that you read is going to apply to you. Recognizing you're unique. You have your own body and you have your own, um, you have unique physiology and you've got to take that into account. And that's, that's 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 something that I think is important to think through. So where do you think people should go for answers then? Because I mean, like, w- we obviously both encourage people. You know, I mean, I've I've shared yeah. know, my thoughts on that yeah. as well in the past. I think you've got to develop a critical lens, but then not everybody's going to be equipped to go to PubMed. I know. And, and I know. I need research. I need to take my entire course at Stanford and just like build it out and just give it away because like it's there's so much knowledge that that just doesn't get to the the, the masses unfortunately mm. um so where do people go um i'm gonna be just super old school here and say back to the basics like the basics are people are most people are not eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day most people are not moving ten thousand steps a day most people are not doing a little bit of high intensity interval training they're not um calling their family and spending time with their friends. They're not doing the basics. They're not taking enough vitamin D. They're not getting outside. They're not going into nature. They're not getting like, it turns out like two hours in nature twice on a weekend can boost natural killer cells for a week. Amazing. Yeah. Like the simple basics, they're not drinking enough water. They're not doing the simple things that we know improve health. Right. And then they're trying to go and, and like watch all these videos online and, and take all the nootropics and fix their health through that. And they're like, they're, and I'm like, it's, I, have, I have clients like this where I'm just like, look, your memory sucks because you've been under chronic stress for years and your hippocampus has shrunk. And this happens under chronic stress. So the only way that we can get your hippocampus to improve is if we actually to remove the things that are causing you the most stress. And also, like, you got to stop eating the gluten and, and the dairy, which we know are making is making you sick. Like, he has like, clear physical breakouts yeah. when, like, when he eats these foods. So you got to remove the things that are causing you the problems. Um, you know, almost everybody needs to do an elimination diet once in their life. Like whole 30, the reason why that got popular is because it was an elimination diet, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that work are not as complicated as we, as we would imagine. And so like my practice is pretty, um, high end human couture medicine. It's like detailing human body. But I, I really do tell most people that like, if you actually get the basics going, you're going to be astonished at how well they work. Yeah. You just got to do them. And that's just not sexy. People don't want to read that. You know, people want to read like, if you take this thing from the Amazon, you're going to fly, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, of course that that's what, that sounds great. I have an entire medicine cabinet of random stuff that I've purchased off the internet. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I love playing with ingredients and I love stuff like that. But, um, 
like some of the ancient stuff from China and, and, and India is pretty astonishingly effective. Like, um, you know, um, just like certain Ayurvedic herbs, um, certain Chinese herbs. Like I feel really, like, you've, yeah, you've talked about like adaptogens before. Yeah, I'm really into adapt- adaptogens. You like, are, huh? I loved, I, I mean, only recently I got into like Jing herbs, like Chinese herbs for Jing. It's very cool to hear an MD talking about yeah. adaptogenic herbs because, yeah. I mean, even you have to admit there's not a ton of research. But almost every there? culture in the world has them and they've been around for thousands of years. Right. So it's like if humans have sort of co-evolved with these plants and every culture in the world has one that they've turned to for helping them cope and adapt, then why do we need more randomized controlled clinical trials? <laughs> like people have been using them. They work great. You know, like I, I like I have um, Shizandra at, at home and these Shizandra berries and like they're, they're awesome. Like they're weird. They have got like five flavors and you just take a cup of that tea, put a few teaspoons in and you're like, you just start feeling better. I love holy basil. Hmm. I mean, Tulsi, that rose Tulsi from Organic India. Like I'm not sponsored by anyone right now, but like I love these brands and I tell people these specific brands because they just work. Um, I went to Erewhon Market and, 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 I, and I, I tried their Jing. It was like a $15 elixir or something. I remember I was like really stressed out and I came into LA and I was doing all this media work and I was like, I was like, God, I'm just so drained right now. I really need something. And I tried this elixir and I was like, this is what opened the world up to me. I was like, <laughs> what are all these things? What does this thing do to me? Because I felt immediately better when I had it. Wow. So I got into things like Elothero, um, Polytrachus Ant, Deer Antler Velvet, like all these random things. Wow. Shilajit, which is cool. Actually, Shilajit is going to be my min- re- remineralization um, solution because I started re- researching re- remineral- remineralization because my teeth got a little bit um, coffee stained over the last month of crazy, crazy stress. <laughs> so I I was like, oh, crap. Like, I got to remineralize. And I'm like, where do I get those? And I was like, oh, cool. Like, people used to just like, you know, if you look at animals in, the, in nature, they lick rocks. Why do they lick rocks? Hmm. Minerals, hmm. right? So like, Shilajit is this crap that grows on rocks <laughs> in Siberia. So I'm going to take a little bit of that on a daily basis for the next month. If you take too much, though, you get way too much energy. Like, Whoa. it'll keep you up at night. So that's a cool um, substance. It tastes really strange. It's like tar. Tar, yeah. Yeah. Super thick. Mm, super thick. But, but, like, clearly, like, nutrient-dense. Um, what else? Mushrooms. Medicinal mushrooms. I'm super into lion's mane, cordyceps, chaga, and reishi. Um, this company I'm starting to advise, it's a coffee company in San Francisco. They're going to rebrand as Tica, T-I-C-A. Um, but they have this unbelievable, like unbelievable can of cold or it's like a coffee with adaptogens. And I'm not kidding. I went, I drank, um, I drank some of it and I went to a meeting with a client and my client was like, you have never been this calm. (laughs) He's like, you are so calm right now. I'm like, I just drank a bunch of coffee too. And he's like, what? Is, what? And I'm like, yeah. And so it, for, they have these like um, water extracted mushroom. Um, and then they also have um, MCT oil. And then what else is in there? There's MCT and uh, theanine. Love theanine. Yeah, theanine's great. Yeah, such a good one. It's really great if you're a coffee drinker. But I'm actually going to, I mean, like my body knows that three cups of coffee is too much per day. So it's now going back to matcha. It's going back to theanine. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually take a, a break for a week where I'm going to like only drink maybe a cup of coffee a day and try to go off of it for a week. Cause mm. it helps reset your adenosine receptors. Theoretically. My friend. I, I do this regularly. Yeah. I take a, once or twice a year, I'll take a whole week and I'll just do decaf coffee or none. Yeah. And, um, it's remarkable yeah. that after the first day without coffee, you feel like you're moving underwater. Mm-hmm. The second day, maybe still, but a little bit less so. By the fourth day, you feel like you've been reborn. Yes. And you don't even want coffee. Yes. Because you have this like amazing consistency of energy. Totally. You just have to get past those three days. Yeah. It's like very short. Yeah. But then the, the turnaround is, is super rapid. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely going to uh, try to do this on, on, on vacation with my family. Uh, hopefully I can do it without dying. Cause I, I, here's the thing about coffee. I love the taste. I love the ritual. Same. I love waking up and I love having my cup. It just brings me joy. And so whenever I give up, give it up for like, I, I usually I'll spend like a month a year, but I've learned that I, don't, I only need to do a week. That's like the worst month ever. And then I get back into drinking it and I'm like, this is great. Like life is good again. Like I just love the way it makes me feel. Yeah. So if I have like one major vice and it's coffee, it's like, okay. <laughs> and like even three cups is not that bad. Like I used to work with a bunch of scientists and they would drink like all day long. Oh my God. So, uh, but my adrenals are like, nope, Molly, you need to chill out. Wow. Yeah. My body knows. It's just, you gotta listen. 
So true. Mm-hmm. Man, this was so fun. I feel like did I we could really talk go to through you. an hour? We're almost at an hour. No way. Yeah, we're almost at an hour. Wow. What didn't we? I mean, there's so much that we didn't touch on. I feel um, like I feel like we could have like a whole series with you. That would be fun. Yeah, would. I would be down. Would I'm gonna be come back. I'm yeah. actually thinking of moving here. It'd be awesome. Yeah. Um. Last minute, la- you know, uh, other takeaways that we can give mm, to the audience. Takeaways for the audience. Yeah. Well. All, you, all you wonderful listeners out there. I um, mean, start with just eliminating sugar. Like, yeah. just really hone in. Like, the best tip I've, I've actually told people is, like, just start counting your sugar calories for, per day. Like, But you know that there's this pushback on, you know, like, a lot of my listeners are on Instagram. Sure. There's, like, this Instagram pushback against the demonization of sugar. That basically sugar's not this... The bad oh, thing. Oh, yeah. All the vegans will tell you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't care what anyone says. It does. And at the end of the day, there is evidence for this. There is plenty of evidence for this. And I just, I think, um, like, you just have to look at human history. We've never had this much sugar before. Like, human disease arises in any culture that starts adopting Western behaviors and habits. Mm-hmm. If you look at Japan, they had the most centenarians in the world. They had the best longevity in the world. And you know what happened when I went there? I discovered that people are getting weight and they're getting diabetes. Why do you think that is? They're starting to eat Western packaged processed food. What's in packaged processed food? Chemical preservatives, sugar and refined carbs. Largely, it's a ton of sugar. Definitely too much salt in that country. But like... Like, like we all know soda's bad, right? Like, yep. at some point, we have to just accept it. Yeah. And, like, cane sugar is cane juice that has been rapidly um, cooked and actually slowly cooked until it's turned into a crystal, right? It's no different than take, making cocaine out of coca leaves. Like, if you're going to have sugar, just eat fruit. Yeah. Just have some grapes. Yeah. Plenty of sugar and grapes. Um, but here's the truth about fruit, too, is that, like, we've done a really good job at, like, hybridizing fruit so that it's uber, uber sweet, right? Like, but if you're going to binge on some sort of sugar, like binge on fruit, right? have whatever you want. Right. Like you're going to get so many phytonutrients and so much fiber. Yeah. And then wear a glucose monitor. Um, if you want, yeah, fruit is self-limiting. Yeah, it's, 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 it is self. I mean, I went to Singapore and I'm not going to lie. I had tons of durian. I probably ate like a thousand calories of durian in one sitting. It was so fun. Does durian smell as bad as everybody says? It is so good. It is literally the king of fruits for a reason. Uh, people need to stop demonizing durian as though it's like bad. It is by far the most unbelievable complex food that I've ever had. It might be my favorite. It might be my top five favorite foods. Wow. Um, it's really tasty. Um, it's the, it's just like, it's delicious. It's super sexy too. It's just like, it's just like unctuous and like, I don't know how people don't like it. Like I find it to be intoxicating, but I want to try. It's got anandamide anandamide in it too. So it's got that, um, same thing that that's in uni. It's just like naturally activates cannabinoid receptors, makes you feel good. Damn. It's cool. Right. Sexy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So like, like white refined sugar, even coconut sugar, let's get real. It's a refined food product. Like it's a very highly, um, it's a, it's, it's just, it's highly refined yeah. and, and coconut sugar is not so much, but like just cause somebody made it in a, in like, like a, just cause someone made coconut sugar in like a Thai town by hand doesn't mean it's not sugar still. Yeah. So you just got to limit it. Just be careful with how much you consume. And by the way, like just 25 grams is still, it's still a few teaspoons a day. You're still having some, yeah. you're still sane. Um, I love honey, you know, Manuka honey is really good. I just discovered you could put seeds in honey, like take a bunch of different seeds and put them into a cup of honey. Yeah. It's so tasty. And it's actually like you consume less honey and you get like a, a mouthful of seeds and yeah. just, so you get some fiber. Um, so just limit it. Like you don't need to have so much in your diet. Of course it doesn't need to be like completely demonized. We need to have some fun in our life, but we have a diabetes epidemic. We have a, we have a serious insulin resistance epidemic. And the reason why people are trying to defend sugar is because they're trying to defend the fact that it's their coping mechanism. Totally. And it's the drug of choice of most people. Totally. So, you know, if you want sugar, eat a bunch of fruit. Here, here. <laughs> Damn. Couldn't have said it better myself. Molly, where can, I've got one more question before yeah. we get to that. Where do listeners connect with you sure. online? Um, okay, find me on Instagram, drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co. If you want to learn about continuous glucose monitoring and want to be one of our beta or alpha testers um, in the next six months, come to Nutrisense.io, N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E.io, and um, keep in touch with me there. And then you can always email me. Um, at molly at, at nutrisense.io. Beautiful. All right, Molly, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? 
That is a really good question because I was recently, somebody was asking me if I was a genius and I was like, I don't understand the question because I'm just a really hard worker. So like for me to be a genius, like I think to live a genius life is to um, take risks and have courage to follow what you believe is, is real deep truth and to seek truth in all cases and to really um, go way deep below the surface level of any topic that you're interested in and to really um, to really become a master of your craft in some way. So like that's, I guess that's what, what genius is to me. I love that. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Maloof. Thank you. You are the bomb. Appreciate Aww. you being here. To all you guys out there listening in podcast land, thank you so much for tuning into The Genius Life. As always, I value your time and your attention. Spread the message. Share this episode. Throw a screen grab up on your Instagram stories. Tag your favorite quote from Dr. Maloof or I. And uh, yeah, I will catch you on the next episode of The Genius Life. Peace.